Welcome to Eczema Breakthroughs, brought to you by Global Parents for Eczema Research, or Cheaper. This show features conversations between parents of children with eczema and the world's leading scientists and researchers who study eczema. Learn more about Cheaper and subscribe to the Eczema Breakthrough podcast at parentsforeczemareresearch.org. My name is Lenita, and I'm an eczema parent and podcast manager for Global Parents for Eczema Research. Today, we are talking about the gut microbiome and how it can influence allergic conditions like eczema and food allergies. I'm joined by Meenal Lele from Philadelphia. She has worked in the medical industry for 20 years. She's the mother of two boys, one with food allergies, and author of the book, The Baby and the Biome, released last year. I'm also joined by allergist and immunologist, Dr. Rima Rashid. She is Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Director of the Allergen Immunotherapy, Allergy and Asthma Program at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Rashid and Meenal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much. First, let's talk about the reasons why you both got involved in looking at how the gut microbiome relates to allergic diseases. In both cases, it stemmed from the observations that allergic conditions in children are on the rise. Dr. Rashid, can you talk about the impetus for your research? Sure. So I always like to say that when I came to the U.S. in 1998 to, to do my fellowship in allergy immunology, it was really because I had very strong interest in primary immunodeficiency. I trained at the American University of Beirut between 95 to 98, and it was a major referral center. And we saw all types of diseases with all the spectrums of it. And I only saw one case of food allergy at that time. So when I came in 98, I was shocked. All I saw in clinic was allergic diseases and food allergies. I mean, initially I was like disbelief, like, is this even real? But it was, it was real. The, the patients were reacting. And my interest really shifted to understanding these epidemics because there was an epidemics that was happening. And we know now that food allergy has uh, increased significantly over the past 20 years. Thank you. Meno, can you talk a bit about how you became interested in the microbiome and what led you to write your book, The Baby and the Biome? Sure. We had been told food allergies are a genetic disorder and nobody else in our family on either side had any of these issues. And so we were very upset to find out when our first son started developing these issues. As I continued to do research and realized that he had eczema early, he had the colic, he had showed all the signs of early gut disruption and the information was out there. And I think that's really what was frustrating for me personally why are these diseases here in a way that they weren't a generation ago? Why is it that I grew up knowing nobody with food allergies? And, you know, if you dig into the research, it's clear that what's happening is this barrier dysfunction and this massive shift in people's micro, the infant microbiome. I've been in the medical space on the industry side for the last 20 years. And it was me reading the New England Journal of Medicine and finding out that his food allergies were potentially preventable. And then I started reading the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and saying like, wait a minute, we have a sense of where these are coming from and we're not doing anything about it. I want people to know that what they could do from a preventative perspective and doctors like Dr. Rashid and many others had already sort of clarified that there's a lot we could do from a preventative perspective to start to decrease our risk. Again, nothing is guaranteed, but we can do a lot to prevent these diseases. And I wish that I had known that. And so it's been sort of my mission over the last 10 years to help um, educate the community about what we can do. And a very worthy mission as well. Thank you. Dr. Rashid, could you talk a little more about your research on fecal microbiota transplant 
and what you've discovered so far. Yeah, absolutely. We decided to study the gut microbiota of uh, babies with and without food allergies. So we collected stools from babies that were food allergic and we enrolled them between the age of one month to 12 months and we followed them for three years. And what we found was that there was significant differences in the gut microbiome between babies that were food allergic and babies that were healthy and they continue to diverge over time. So we selected few bacteria from healthy babies and we put them into a highly allergic mouse model And we found that select bacteria can actually completely prevent anaphylaxis in a food allergy mouse model that is highly allergic. So these bacteria are very interesting, but they were not available to be evaluated in humans. But what was available was fecal microbiota transplantation. So what is a fecal transplant? It is a transfer of somebody's stool, and that person should be healthy, into a person that has a certain condition or disease with the hope that this is going to treat that condition or disease. That was in 2015 when fecal microbiota transplantation administered via a capsule that was odorless and tasteless showed very similar efficacy to a fecal transplant that was administered via enema or via colonoscopy. It was really when the frozen encapsulated fecal material that was administered and showed similar efficacy that we're like, okay, now we should evaluate this in food allergy because an enema or a colonoscopy is a bit too aggressive for somebody who has a food allergy, but is otherwise, you know, fine. But with the capsules being available we decided that we're going to do a fecal transplant trial to evaluate patients with peanut allergy. With food allergy, there is one caveat. What if the donor ate a food that a patient is allergic to? So the donors are very carefully selected because they have to be very healthy. All the patients had to react during a food challenge to 100 milligram peanut protein or less. That's less than half a peanut. Our primary endpoint was, is it safe? And we found that actually overall it's safe. We administered the first 10 fecal transplant without pre-treating with antibiotics. And then we looked whether a patient could react to 300 or 600 milligram one month or four months after the fecal transplant. And we had three patients who actually showed efficacy. So we were like, so what happens if we were to give antibiotics? So we enrolled five patients and they received antibiotic pretreatment. And then we did again a fecal transplant. And four months later, three out of five reached 600 milligram when they reacted. So that was very, very promising. We also had very interesting immunological results that the markers of tolerance increased and the markers of allergies decreased in these patients. What was interesting is when we took the stools of the patients at baseline and then put them into the food allergy mouse model, there was no protection from anaphylaxis. But when we took the stools four months later, there was complete protection from anaphylaxis. That did not happen with those who didn't respond. There was no protection. So there was like, it was another evidence that it's the change in the microbiome that led to protection from anaphylaxis in these mice. So with these very promising results, we decided to go into phase two. And this is a very concentrated form of fecal transplant. It contains less than 1% fecal material. And the good news is that you can leave it in the fridge. So once the children who are 12 to 17 take the capsules, they will go home, they will take capsules for 28 days of therapy. And then we will do another challenge at one month and four months and see what happens. But this is where we are. 
Fantastic. Meno, you talked about realising after the fact that there were missed opportunities with your son and food allergies. Knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? First off, when my son was very young and he started to develop signs of eczema, right, I wish I had understood how much that is a hallmark. He was definitely spitting up way more than he should. So I wish we had seen that as an early sign of some gut distress. I wish we had seen the eczema as an early sign of what all the listeners here know as the atopic march. And of course, now we know very well about early allergen introduction and what we can do to introduce these allergens early and train the immune system so uh, our children don't develop food allergies. I'm not the researcher, right? I'm reading other people's research. And it's not clear in the research exactly what we can do. Although, again, Dr. Rashid is working on that to fix it. You know, there is really no known single introduction that definitely will prevent an allergic disease. When it comes to early introduction, they found that early introduction of peanut in patients with significant eczema or with egg allergy led to a significant decrease in the incidence of peanut allergy at the age of five years. So it is as if there was like a window. I mean, I really feel like, and this is just personal observation right now, this is not science, but as if there is a window, a window where if you stop or if you are not very adamant about giving peanut on a regular basis, then a reaction will happen. So there is no doubt that there was a striking difference in uh, the LEAP study when peanut was introduced early. But the problem is that we have to yet understand in each society and in each country or culture, how does that translate when it comes to real-world applicability and what happens? Sure. And that window, that magic window for each baby was different. Yeah. We just know that it happens sometime between like four months and roughly 11 months. And sometimes later. You're absolutely right. The idea is that you want to start the early allergen introduction before that window and keep going through the window. And the way I liken it is like you put the baby gates up before you think your baby's going to crawl and you keep them up until after the baby has mastered stairs, right? And that day of crawling is totally different for every baby. And that is the fascinating part, but also the frustrating part. That's what we need <laughs> to learn more and understand more. Some of the things we can do are try and minimize some of the unnecessary disruption, right? So the biggest things being like, if you can breastfeed, that's great. If you can minimize unnecessary bathing of the baby, this is one of the biggest things is constantly stripping the infant's skin with really harsh, unnecessary infant soaps and then being judicious with antibiotics in cooperation with your pediatrician because nobody wants an infant who's sick. But I think there's a lot of times we as parents want to jump to the antibiotics or times where we introduce antibiotics unnecessarily in foods, in soaps in our house, things like that. So if we can let our pediatricians know, hey, we want what's overall best for our kids in their long-term health, that's an opportunity the pediatrician has to say, is this a watch and wait situation? Or is this a, nope, they need these antibiotics, you know? So the book, The Baby in the Biome, tries to go through this. How do you make these decisions and these trade-offs? Because nothing is 100%. It's all about how can you make choices that accumulatively reduce that risk of microbial disruption and barrier dysfunction. I, I definitely see your point about the antibiotics, Minal, but I just want to emphasize that it's very important. I mean, these are babies 
And babies are very susceptible because the immune system of the baby, the first year, and specifically the first few months is not well developed. I'm not just an allergist, I'm an immunologist. So that is why specifically the first two months of life, we are very careful and any fever for us is alarming. And that is why we give antibiotics because we're worried about serious infections. So yes, as you mentioned, you really have to consult and discuss with the pediatrician. I certainly would not put the pressure on the pediatrician not to administer an antibiotic because we know so many patients who actually developed allergies without antibiotic intake. Right. So any unnecessary use of antibiotics is what you're trying to avoid. So that brings me to probiotics. Probiotics are supposed to help restore the balance in our gut microbiome. And Menel, I believe you did do a research summary about probiotics in the gut. Yeah, that um, particular meta-analysis was about eczema prevention specifically with the use of probiotics. What's particularly interesting about probiotics is that we're very challenged in what we can safely grow. Your standard probiotic, almost to a T, they are things that happen to grow in milk and they happen to do it in a way that can be somewhat aseptic. And that is just a very limited set of things. The eczema one, though, I think is pretty exciting. Lactobacillus rhamnosus was the only bacteria that seemed to have some effect, about a 50% reduction in the risk of atopic eczema. But I should point out that what that meta-analysis showed is that L. rhamnosus can cut the risk of atopic eczema, only that, and only when used perinatally, when mom takes it in the third trimester and baby takes it in the first few months during breastfeeding. And so I think in a family that has a strong history of eczema and they're worried about it, that's an intervention that might make sense. It's so hard to evaluate these studies because you have different races, different ethnicities, different diets. Diet is so important in the microbiome, right? It is very, very, very complex. So certainly if you feel like you want to give a probiotic to your baby, you can go ahead. I mean, these are over the counter. But let us also remember that there could be benefit, but occasionally it could be harmful. Usually in a healthy infant, it's not going to be horribly harmful, but the FDA has issued a warning about administering this in a preterm baby. Obviously, Dr. Rashid is correct on all these things, and I hope that that was what people took away from what I was saying too. I think the frustrating thing is, you're both right, it's so complex, um, but I do feel like we are making progress. And I really want to ask you, Dr. Rashid, your research on fecal microbiota transplant, where is it leading at the moment? We are at phase two trials right now. I think it's very exciting. I think we're still scratching the tip of the iceberg when it comes to understanding the microbiome and how these interventions are going to help. But at least what's very exciting is that the studies are, are ongoing. That's very exciting. And your results are really impressive. Promise. And I love that you are including teenagers in your phase two trial. So you're working with kids that have already got food allergies. Yes. Do you think down the track, there might be potential for this to be a preventative option? Yeah. Yes. Well, yes, I do think so. But, you know, we have to do first the trials to understand more the microbiome. We know from many food allergy studies that children seem to respond better to interventions than, than adults. But when it comes to prevention, yes, it is certainly on our mind. The other thing is it's possible we might be able to detect specific bacteria that seem to be more associated with success and, and with efficacy. And it's possible potentially that one could develop a second generation of uh, probiotics 
they have to be evaluated really in robust clinical trials and they have to be done rigorously to answer the question, is this helpful, is this not? And if it's helpful, which patients are benefiting? I think that's super exciting, right? I think we're all searching for the answers and yeah. we'll take, take them where we can get them. And, and honestly, it, it would be so amazing to finally understand what's actually going on, right? Like, what are the key species? Is there a window in which they matter most? I hope the answer isn't forever. It's complicated and we don't know. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I don't think the answer is going to be forever. It's complicated and we don't know because there is also the development of artificial intelligence and our understanding of the microbiome as it changes. So I do think that we'll be able to understand and analyze data in a much faster way and complex way than we are currently able to. So in the next five years, I think we will look at it in a very different way. And we will have to, to learn more and understand more to see the variability and, uh, yeah. and how we take this in context when people eat differently and have a different environment. So it is complex. It is fascinating. This is the work of so many people at Boston Children's, uh, our collaborators in Minnesota with Alex Korodz or Eric Alm at MIT or Libby Holman, who was a pioneer in doing the oral transplantation, Talal um, Shatila and, and his lab and Robert Boisker and everybody. So it takes more than a village. It takes a city. <laughs> yes. <laughs> If there's one thing I think we should take away from just how much work you, your team and everyone you're working with has to do to fix it, is that we should be careful with it in the first place, right? Yeah, that's why it's critical to find that window and the signature of tolerance when patients lose some of their allergies. It's critical and we're hoping to evaluate that further. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. We are at time, but I have very much enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast. To learn more and join Global Parents for Eczema Research or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit us at parentsforeczemaresearch.org. And if you enjoy our podcast, consider supporting it with a tax-deductible donation through our website. We depend on listeners like you to keep producing high-quality, science-based episodes. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Eczema Breakthrough Podcast.